0: Live from the JL in London, join us for 20 minutes weekly with Rabbi Dr Akiva Tetz, hosted by myself, Mena Reisner, as we delve into the hottest topics of the 21st century. From the origins of the universe, vaccine conspiracies, genetics and Jewish law, relationships, and everything in between. You are listening to Conversations with Rabbi Tatz, And welcome back to Conversations with Rabbi Dr. Akiva Tatz. Last week we discussed the Sphere Sa'omer, which is the countdown until Shavuos. In this week's podcast, which is the second in a series of three episodes about the upcoming Chag of Shavuos, we'll be discussing the experience the Jewish nation had at Mount Sinai, So I suppose we'll start by asking the most basic of questions. What really happened at Sinai?
1: Thank you, Rabbi Mena, for this uh, second opportunity to talk about significant themes in in Judaism and Jewish life. Yes, Sinai was a once-in-history moment of revelation, direct, unedited, unfiltered, where God met the world, so to speak. In childlike terms, I suppose, God came down to the world. When you're six years old, I suppose you picture that as a man with a long white beard appearing on a mountain. But of course it's something much higher than that. We're talking about a meeting between the finite and the infinite. And the purpose of this meeting, if you like, is that once in history there needed to be established once and for all, beyond all beyond all doubt and, and question, a direct meeting. I mean it's much deeper than that as I'll try to explain, but at the mo- most superficial level, for example reading the words of the Rambam, Maimonides who talks about this, he makes it plain at the first level. That all prophetic revelation and all indirect revelation, miracles, prophecy, etc., all of them leave a gap, a gap of knowledge. The way the Rambam puts it is, since those could have been done by other means, sorcery, magic, hypnotism, who knows what, there always would have been a gap in human knowledge. And therefore, once in history, there was the establishing of a direct, uh, unedited, immediate experience, and that was the privilege of the Jewish people to experience that. It was made available to the whole world, but the Jews were the ones who took up that opportunity. And we stem, we go back to a moment in time where God, where God met us, so to speak. The, the, the Talmud says that when God spoke, the Jews died. In other words, as the first of the commandments was uttered, everyone died. When your soul is faced with its ultimate source, it doesn't hang around with your body. Right? The souls leapt out of their bodies, so to speak, to their source. They were then revived, God spoke to them again, they died again, and from then on they said to Moses, you know, that's enough, not easy to, to die, and you tell us the rest. And the rest was transmitted to us, so to speak, by Moses, but but we'd already established, so to speak, the credentials.
0: Is that similar in a way to when one sleeps, one has to have a sort of a revival of death?
1: Yes, this will, I think, take us a little off track, but sleep is a is an aspect of death. The way the Talmud puts it is a 60th of death. The notion we have in sleep is that the soul leaves the body, almost all the soul, not the animal part of the soul that keeps you vital, otherwise you wouldn't be breathing and wouldn't wake up again, but the higher levels of consciousness leave. That's why dreams can be unconstrained. They're not limited by the finite because you're operating in a world that transfinite. Dreams take you into the world of unreality. Actually, dreams take you into a paradoxical world where there's an aspect of unreality always, and yet dreams can have a prophetic connection to the truth as well. Let's not confuse a Sinai experience with a dream. I would say it to you this way. Our life in this world is a dream. Sinai was stepping out of the dream.
0: Wow. That caught me off balance. <laughs> um.
1: Well, since you asked such, a, such a, a good question, let me say one further word. It'll take us a little off track of Sinai, but I think it's worth noting. Why do we dream? Why do we dream? Very interesting question. Let's, let's, let's put it this way. Why would God create us? In a world that that axiomatically is illusion, we 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 understand that the world we inhabit is an illusion. We call it an olam in Hebrew. The word olam means to hide, and in in, in Talmudic literature, this is known as the alma shikra, the world of of lies, falsehood, illusion. So our notion is that we live in a world of illusion, and after death, before death, and after death, we will we come from and we will go back to a world of of objective and total reality. That's the notion. We live in this world of illusion to give us free will, a lot to talk about here. But here's the problem. If we live in a world of illusion, why would God create us in such a way that we go to sleep and then enter a world of illusion within the illusion? It's Very peculiar. Why would he do that to us? You're living through a dream in which things are terrifyingly real or ecstatically real, and then you wake up and realize that was nothing at all, just a figment of imagination. This is real. Why would he do that to us? How confusing is is that, to put, put us in a world of illusion? And then give us an experience which doubles the illusion, what, is the, what does that mean? But I'll tell you a wonderful explanation. I heard this originally from Rav Mordechai Miller from the Gateshead Seminary, but it's a, no question this is the correct approach. The reason is this. Imagine you walk up to a friend of yours and you say to him, you know, the world you experience is all illusion. Seems like hard-core reality objects some objective existence this is all just an illusion no it's nothing one day you'll transition from this and you'll wake up so to speak and you'll realize that what you lived here was a total illusion your friend will say do me a favor i'm a hardcore realist that's talk you know it's a theory but there's no way that i can relate to such a thing i got my feet firmly planted on the ground i relate to what i can see and feel and touch your story leaves me unmoved god says to such a person you know what go to sleep Here's this person goes to sleep, and in his dream, he experiences unbelievable ecstasy or abject terror, which is very real. The, the, the characteristic of a dream is that you think it's real, right? You, you, when you dream, you don't know you're dreaming. You wouldn't be terrified if you did. It'd be a free horror movie. You'd be enjoying yourself. So when you're asleep and dreaming, you think it's absolutely real, no question about that. And then you wake up and you realize that what you've just been through, which was totally convincingly real, is nothing. Once you've once been through that in your experience, how can you ever deny that what you're living now is totally reliable? You see, God has given you an experience. He's created you in such a way that you can have something that is totally convincingly real and within an instant you can realize that it was only a figment of imagination. What could be a better way of sensitizing you to realizing that the existence that you have so much confidence in and put so much store by as being hardcore real now may one day lead to something greater? And therefore, ironically, the illusory experience of a dream is a tool that connects you with the reality more potently than
0: anything else. Well, so it's almost a gift from Hashem to allow us to experience that. Absolutely. Other purposes in dreams as well, but that is one central one. We know that all Jews at Sinai experienced real unfiltered faith and What is real faith? What is the definition of real emuna, and how was it established at Mount Sinai?
1: Let, let's clarify a couple of terms. When you say they experienced emuna at Sinai, I would say they experienced the reality. Emuna means an attachment to the reality. Faith implies some sort of a belief. Let, let, let's talk about this for a moment. It's very important to clarify. Here's the central concept. Not commonly known, <coughs> not so easy to explain, but very important to know. The Jews during the exodus process experienced God in two ways. The first was through miracles. Jews in Egypt and the non-Jews experienced miracles which without any question proved God's existence. No question about that. Now here's the question. Why, if they experienced God clearly through the miracles, did they need to experience Him more clearly at Sinai? Let's put it this way. The Rambam, let's take the words of Maimonides and analyze them. The Rambam says that anyone who believes in God through miracles has some imperfection in his belief. That's what he says. Kolam maim in anybody who believes in God through miracles or wonders or signs, yesh beliboy dofi, dofi in Hebrew means some, some taint, some, some imperfection, some, some false flavor. Why, says the Rambam? Because theoretically speaking, miracles could be done by sorcery, magic. There could be manipulations of the natural. Such things have happened. and therefore, And therefore, anybody who's convinced by miracles may be convinced, and he may be wise to do so, but there's no 100% reliability because miracles could be illusory in some way, and therefore the Jewish people went to Sinai when our eyes saw and our ears heard, leaving no gap or or possibility of any illusion. That's what the Ramam says. Let's analyze his words a little bit more deeply. That's what's commonly known and it's often quoted. But I'd like to put to you that that it's possibly misunderstood. And here's the correct understanding explain as clearly as I can. Miracles in Egypt were certainly good enough, certainly good enough. When the Rambam says they always leap a gap, leave a gap of doubt, maybe this was some kind of manipulation, that's not the case. The Jews got the message very clearly in Egypt. and Not only that, so did the Egyptians and they weren't trying. The Egyptians were not trying to see reality, they were trying to deny it. The Egyptians got the message loud and clear and that was the purpose of the miracles and that's why we go back to Sinai and beyond. We go back before Sinai to the exodus as the defining moment of our creation as a people. What happened at the exodus before Sinai? We witnessed miracles. God revealed himself through miracles. Now, if miracles were good enough, why did he need to take us to Sinai? And if miracles were not good enough, then how come the Egyptians didn't get the Sinai experience? Here's what God said. He says to Moses, I'm going to show you miracles. Why? So that all the land shall know, the Jews and the non-Jews, Pharaoh and all his people should know that I am God. The Torah says that five times. So there's no question the miracles were given for people, non-Jews, Egyptians, to know who God is, which means they must be good enough. If God is offering the Egyptians miracles as a proof of who he is, they must be good enough. And they were good enough. And the Egyptians got the message. Well, here's the problem. What does the Rambam mean that miracles are somehow inadequate because they could be manipulations? They weren't. They were good enough. The Egyptians got the message. And conversely, if they're not good enough, then every Egyptian has a right to say there was a manipulation. Well, then give the Egyptians Sinai as well. However, you cut this. If miracles are good enough, then why did we need something beyond that? And if miracles are not good enough, then how did God expect the Egyptians to get them out? And not only that, they got the message. Here's the, here's the meaning. This is sophisticated and beautiful. I heard this from Ramosh Shapir, and it's worth understanding deeply. Miracles are certainly good enough. There's no question about that. The miracles in Egypt convinced everybody. Right? The Egyptians were forced to say this is the finger of God. No question about it. But miracles have one problem. What the Rambam means when he says that they leave in your heart some sort of a an imperfection or a gap is that miracles are not direct experience. They're inexperienced by inference, deduction, conclusion. When you see that the natural world is turned on its head, oh, that informs you that it's not what you thought it was before. What's the conclusion? There must be something else. What is that something else? God. But you haven't seen him. Here's the message. The miracles were good enough to convince everybody of who God is, but that wasn't a personal experience. Here's the key. The reason the Jews went to Sinai was not to be proved more clearly that God exists. It was to meet him and marry him. Sinai was a marital experience, and that's for Jews. The reason the Egyptians didn't go to Sinai, they're not it's not their role to marry God in that intimate. So the correct understanding of the Rambam is when God proves himself through miracles, that's good enough proof. But it's not a personal meeting. It's a mathematical proof, an inference. It's a scientific deduction, an inference, a conclusion. That's not a marital experience. We went to Sinai not, to, not for a better proof that God exists but to meet him. Listen to the words of Rambamuashe Shapira. These words are exquisite and you cannot say it better than this. He says people think we went to Sinai for a different quality different a different level of proof a different level of proof that means the proof wasn't conclusive in Egypt that's how they read the Rambam Sinai was conclusive he said we did not go to Sinai for a better level of proof we went for a different quality of marriage a quality of knowledge we went to Sinai not to be convinced more clearly that God existed but to marry him and meet him and therefore throughout history the miracles were good enough But there needed to be one moment. Not because that convinces you ultimately and the others didn't. Everybody got the message in Egypt. But we went to Sinai for a completely different reason. And that was to begin a personal relationship that would fire us up with an intensity that would last through all the tortures of history and take us finally to the promised land. Wow.
0: But this experience, as you said, was only for the Jewish people. How about the non-Jewish nations? What, What was their purpose?
1: Well, the axiom is that Torah is given to the whole world. And as we know, there's a section in Torah which, which, uh, which addresses the seven basic commandments for the non-Jewish world and of course all the sub-details and components and the Talmud goes into all of those. So the Torah is, is predicated on the understanding that all humans need it. And in fact, if you look at the Western nations, both the Muslims and the Christians go back to the Torah. They have additions and and modifications, but they all agree that Sinai happened, as we claim. The East and the Far East is another discussion, perhaps one of our podcasts we can talk about that. But in the Western nations, which are our personal nemesis, right? the Far East has never tried to destroy us. We have no historical interaction with the Far East. The West are the ones who rather we, we weren't here, one way or another. And so the Torah is postulated... Uh, for all uh, for all human beings there's no there's no there's no question about that each with his own his or her own personal role at sinai the torah was offered to the world right? the non-jewish nations took a step back it had certain issues in it that they that they were not compatible with their lifestyles or beliefs or whatever it was and so the, the, the from that moment on the torah became the the primary uh, possession of the jewish people with its own levels of instruction for all of humankind. And, uh, of course, any of them who insists on doing it our way can convert. We don't look for converts. We tell non-Jews they don't need to convert to become perfect human beings, unlike many other religions. But any non-Jew is convinced that he wants to do it our way with all the strictures and difficulties and and uh, obligations and privileges, of course, um, person the non-Jew is insistent enough he can convert to Jews. Do so. We don't recommend it. We discourage it. But, of course, if a person insists on... Uh, and having it our way you can join you can join us
0: wow so i think our time is up thank you very much again rabbi tetz for joining us for, the, for another fascinating discussion um as i said last week any comments feedback or suggestions for future topics should be emailed to podcasts at jle.org.uk that was episode two make sure to join us for the final episode in this series discussing the upcoming Chag of Schwarz, same time, same place, next week. Thank you.